if you want a title for today's message, it's Holiness and the Dearest Place on Earth. We're presently doing a series on the dearest place on earth. We've looked at the church, how the church really is the dearest place on earth. And last week we looked at unity in the dearest place on earth. Well, today we examine holiness and the dearest place on earth. And look with me, please, at chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Lord, when you move, you do give us a taste of heaven here. Because when you presence yourself, oh Lord, how we long to be like you. Lord, we love to be with you. And Lord, I thank you that when the piano stops, you don't leave the building. You're still here. You're with us to show us yourself in your word, to encourage us, to equip us to help your children even now. And so, Lord, bless this time by your amazing grace. Help us to see what you have to say to us today. Amen. In all of my life, all 41 years of it, I've never been much of a fan of vegetables. I mean, whatever age I've been, veg has just really not been my thing. And so I've always had friends that love vegetables. I've always had family members that love vegetables. They really like them. But for me, vegetables have just never floated my boat. You know, I mean, broccoli. It looks like a green lung. Why would anybody want to eat that? That's where bronchitis comes from. I'm sure it's connected to broccoli. You know, it's just a horrible, a horrible thing. As soon as it touches your lip, you feel a gag reflex happening. And then there's cabbages. Awful things. Brussels sprouts, they're like your own personal bush tucker trial. Brussels sprouts, as soon as it touches your lip, you just want to reject this thing. It's awful. And that's just vegetables. I don't really like fruit either. I mean, those strawberries, they have those little pips on the outside that brush you, they just brush the back of your throat and you just make you want to gag. I like Skittles. I mean, that's part of my five and day. But fruit, but particularly vegetables, I really, really don't like vegetables. So listen, I know there are lots of very die-hard vegetable fans in Sovereign Grace Church. I love you. I do. I deeply respect you. I do. I love the fact that you love vegetables. I love the fact that as a gift, you would buy a box of vegetables for David and Priscilla. I I rejoice in that. That brings glory. I I praise and thank God for that moment. But if you had done that to me, I'd be deeply offended because I don't like them. They're horrible. I respect you. I don't really want any. I respect other people that love vegetables, but as for me, vegetables just aren't really my thing. And the sad reality 
as I think there are far too many Christians today that think of their pursuit of holiness just like I think about vegetables. It's an optional. You can take it or leave it. And so for sure, the pursuit of holiness, people becoming more like Christ, oh, that, that's great for others. I love it. I deeply respect it about them. I can see how it's doing them good. But for me, well, it's just never really floated my boat. I didn't grow up around a family that really pursued holiness. I didn't grow up around a family that would pray about personal holiness. I, I didn't grow up a family that would talk to me in the car on the way home about, hey, how son, is this going to make you more like Christ as you pursue this? I didn't grow up around that. And so the pursuit of personal holiness, yes, for others, it's great. I can see the effect of it. But for me, well, the pursuit of holiness maybe just isn't really my thing. I think all around us today in the world, we see a people who are Christians and yet think of the pursuit of holiness like I think of vegetables. It's good for others, but for me, no, no thank you. And yet what a grievous and unbiblical and dangerous place we find ourselves in when that is what we believe and practice. Kevin DeYoung in his wonderful book, The Hole in Our Holiness, says it this way. He says, the hole in our holiness is that we don't really care much about it. Passionate exhortation to pursue gospel-driven holiness is barely heard of in most of our churches. It's not that we don't talk about sin or encourage decent behavior, but too many sermons are basically self-help seminars on becoming a better you. And that's moralism, and it's not helpful. A gospel which says only what you must do and never announces what Christ has done is no gospel at all. So I'm not talking here about getting beat up every Sunday for watching Sports Center and driving an SUV. No, I'm talking about the failure of Christians, especially younger generations, and especially those most disdainful of religion and legalism, to take seriously one of the great aims of our redemption and one of the required evidences of eternal life. Namely, our holiness. For there is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. And this must change. Listen, it's not pietism, legalism, or fundamentalism to take holiness seriously. It's the way of all those who have been called to a holy calling by a holy God. Did you catch that? It's not pietism or legalism or fundamentalism to take holiness seriously. No. It's the way of all those who have been called to a holy calling by a holy God. See, for so many Christians today, I think we're very, very aware of the danger of legalism. Very aware of it. We're very aware of the temptation and the tendency and the danger to smuggle our works into a salvation that is all of grace, right? We're well versed in that. We know it well. We know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing in our hands do we bring, simply to the cross we cling, correct? It's all a work of His incredible grace. And as Christians, I think we're very aware of the danger of legalism. And so we guard ourselves against the danger of legalism. And yet, I think for so many Christians, we are completely unaware of the danger of antinomianism. The danger of antinomianism 
is the dangerous and erroneous idea that as Christians, keeping God's law simply has nothing to do with us. That God's law doesn't matter anymore. Jesus paid it all. And so it doesn't matter, right? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He paid it all for me. And so the law has got nothing to do with me. It doesn't really matter anymore. He loves me. He delights in me. So what? That is antinomianism. That is unbiblical. And it is my job as your pastor to protect you from that. Because it's not true. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, In reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we are justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. Is that not provoking and sobering to you? We are saved so that we may be, become holy. It's all the way through God's Word. So Ephesians 1, let me just give you a sprinkling of a few examples. There are hundreds of examples, but let me give you a sprinkling. Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 4, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, listen, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. There's a reason. There's a reason for our great salvation. It's for His glory, and so that we may be holy and blameless before Him. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 15, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Friends, holiness and its pursuit isn't just important as biblically defined. It is absolutely vital. It is not an optional extra like I view vegetables. It's a core part of the Christian life. It's who we really are. And that pursuit of holiness then is assumed all the way through the Bible that of course we'll be pursuing it. Because that's what we're called to. To become more and more like Jesus Christ. And the Bible's clear that there are reasons for that. There are reasons why the pursuit of this holiness is so important. I mean, first and foremostly, the pursuit of holiness is one of the true markers of genuine salvation. And my friends, particularly if you're younger here today, if you're under the age of 18... If you're under the age of 21, let's go crazy. I'm getting older, so we'll call you younger than older. If you're under the age of 21, you need to understand this because you have grown up in a church culture that loves to take Jesus as Savior but doesn't want to take him as Lord, and you think that's okay. 
And yet the Bible teaches, unless we take him as Savior and Lord, we're not saved yet. And we must understand that. The pursuit of holiness is one of the true markers that we're actually in the faith. And so in James chapter 2, verse 14 and 17, James says it this way. Listen, this is God addressing us. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? No. For faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. How sobering is that? He's helping us see, listen, yes, yes, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without doubt. Nothing in your hands do you bring your salvation. You don't add anything to it. it. It's all him. All you do is you bow your knee to him. You take him as the Lord and Savior of your life. And then you're a Christian without any doubt. But what he's saying is that salvation and that grace and that faith, if it is real, it will never be alone. Yes, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But where it is genuine faith, it will never be alone. It will play out in your life. You'll start to have a love for the saints, a love for the Lord, a love for his word, and a desire to be holy just like he is holy. That's why as parents, we must, as our children get older, not rely on some four-year-old confession of faith that they made and just think, well, they're in. When quite evidently, there is nothing coming forward from them that suggests a love for Jesus, a passion for his word, and a desire to be more like him. In fact, there's evidence quite the other. That's why Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, verse 21, God, be sobered by this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, Jesus himself is well aware that there will be people that say to him, Lord, Lord, I believe in you. Well, even the demons believe. Now, the ones that enter into heaven will be the ones that say, Lord, Lord, and that Lord, that cry of the heart is real. And because of that, they do the will of the Father because they want to. They're compelled for love out of Jesus, and so they want to do the will of the Father. They're the ones that are in. Because faith without works is dead. The pursuit of genuine holiness is one of the true markers, then, of genuine salvation. It's also the way that our witness becomes more effective in the world. I mean, we're called to be his body, aren't we? We saw it a few weeks ago. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. This is what Jerry Bridges says about that. He says, have you ever thought about the fact that the way you fulfill your duties at work or the way you perform your professional services can make the teaching about God more attractive? Just this sobering question. Why isn't the gospel more attractive to unbelievers today? Maybe one primary reason is the fact that in the everyday affairs of life, we Christians are no different from the general mass of unbelievers. How sobering. Maybe, maybe, maybe one reason why the gospel is so unattractive 
It's because the way we are with people in the world and the way we talk and the way we behave and our values and what we stand for, they just see no different. And so it's not attractive to them because they go, well, why would I want that? You're just like me. My friends, that doesn't mean, therefore, that we have to get it right all the time, right? It doesn't mean we have to pretend to be somebody we're not. No, that's not what it's saying. We've got to be honest. But the truth is, if we're genuinely becoming more and more like Christ, even unbelievers should look on and notice. Be aware, you talk different. You act different. Your marriage is different to mine. Your family is different to mine. What's up with that? The pursuit of holiness is one of the true markers of genuine salvation. It's also the way that our witness becomes more effective in the world. And you know what else it is? It's also the way that we ensure that we please God in our lives and not grieve Him or bring sorrow to Him. See, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I love that. Do you feel His, his passion and intensity? Church, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do it all for the glory of God. Let it all be about Him. Let it all be to gaze at Him, to bring Him glory, to please Him in all of your life, whether you eat or you drink or you're watching TV or you're relaxing, whatever you do. Do it all to please Him and to bring Him glory. As Christians, we know that. And yet, one of the mistakes we make, I think, in our generation is we think because God loves us, because He's our Father and His love is unconditional, that surely we must always then please Him. He's always pleased with us. Not true. Yes, He does love us unconditionally. He loves us like a father loves a child. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and therefore He delights in us. He does love us. But through our behavior, we can nonetheless grieve him and bring him sorrow. That's why Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, verse 30. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of your redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, it is quite clear then that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? And how do we ensure that we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, we let all anger and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from us. Because when we act in those things, it grieves Him. Lloyd-Jones, one of my historical heroes, talks about this. I think it's wonderful. He says, People take great trouble to read books on etiquette in order that they may behave properly in certain high social circles. Think of the care with which people study the rules if they should have the privilege of being presented to the queen. How careful we would be of our speech at Buckingham Palace. But we should be infinitely more careful of our speech wherever we are, because of the guest who dwells within us. Our thoughts, our imaginations, he is there. He knows about them. It is comparable to swearing in the presence of a saint or using unworthy language in the presence of some holy person. 
This is Christian sanctification, a realization that he is within us. And we must think of him, our guest, and that should be incentive enough. Our friends, we must not look at holiness and the pursuit of holiness like I can think about vegetables. It's good for you. It's great for you. Yeah, just not my preference. It's good for you. You clearly grew up around all this stuff. I didn't. So holiness, well, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, holiness, oh my, that's just for legalists and fundamentalists and for, for people that just like strict rules and I don't really like them. So you just carry on. Holiness, not for me. Now, holiness and the pursuit of holiness is absolutely vital to the Christian faith and to the Christian. It cannot be escaped. As a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, as one of the markers of genuine salvation, and as a way to ensure that we not be grieving him through our actions and our speech, grieving the very one that resides in our heart, we have to pursue holiness. And the question I want to answer for the remainder of my time is how then do we pursue it? What does it look like in our lives to genuinely pursue holiness in our lives? How do we actually go about pursuing holiness in our lives? The process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And it is a process, okay? We're never going to get there. You're not going to find that some old deer is going to walk into Sovereign Grace Church at 90 and you go, wow, I think... They're fully holy. No, they're not. They still suck, to be honest. There's still problems. There's still things. One day, Jesus Christ will return, and he will glorify us, and in that moment, we will be fully holy. And nonetheless, in this life, we're called to pursue it, to become more like him, to do everything we can. Now, I want you to understand that one of the reasons why I wanted to hit this topic during our Dearest Place on Earth series is because one of the defining realities of the church is that even in this, we get to do it together. And that's good news. God didn't save you by his grace and you came rushing in into the the presence of the local church, commit to Jesus Christ, and then he just says, wonderful, now be holy just as I am holy. Okay, on your way, you're by yourself. No, he doesn't. He brings us into the context of local churches where we have brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers to help us who are also on the same journey. And my friends, the truth is if we are going to pursue holiness genuinely in our lives, we must understand we need each other, don't we? You desperately need those around you. That's why John Piper says sanctification is a community project. It is. My pursuit of Personal holiness is a community project. If we are going to pursue holiness, genuinely become more like Christ, you're going to need the prayers of those around you. You're going to need the encouragements of those around you. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. We're called in our lives to stir one another up to love and good deeds because we're going to get tired. We're going to be challenged. We're going to find it overwhelming. We're going to need other prayers. We're going to need others' help. We're going to have to find people that we confess our sins to, which it talks about in the Bible, you know? We need others. 
We need others to help us in our lives. And that's why in Sovereign Grace Church, we have life groups and in particular, growth groups. Growth groups weren't designed so that we could come together and just give each other a big hug. And I'm just taking you as you are. Oh, you're lovely. No, they were designed so that we could understand as individuals, hey, I'm not like Jesus and I want to be. And would you help me? Would you as men in my life, or as women in your life if you're a lady, would you, would you help me? Because these are some of the areas that I think I need to grow in, that I'm not like Jesus. Would you pray for me? Would you encourage me? Would you, would you aid me in this process? Because I need you. And hey, how can I be helping you? How can I be cheering you on in your pursuit of holiness? Because this is important, right? That's why we have growth groups. That's why we want to put structures in place in Sovereign Grace Church that I believe reflect the biblical mandates on our lives and the structures are just the trellis to help us pursue that in our lives. That's why growth groups are important. And here the Apostle Paul, as I've mentioned before, is not only a tent maker, he's a tent engineer. And he gives us right here in these verses we read at the start the process then of holiness. How do we change? What does this look like? How do we go about this? Yes, we need each other, but what are we even meant to do with each other? How do we do this? Well, five things. Five things. They're all short, so don't panic. You will be home for lunch. Five things that I think will help you understand the process of holiness and the priorities we need to abide by in our lives. Number one, we must understand, number one, holiness is a process that requires effort. Holiness is a process. It's not immediate. It's a process that requires our effort. See, my friends, we are not just passive in our pursuit and practice of holiness. And we must understand that. I mean, you hear slogans. You hear lovely slogans, and they're so lovely. Just, just let go and let God. Oh, that sounds beautiful. I love that. You just need to stop trying and start trusting. I love those slogans. They're so nice. They appeal to everything about me because they make me think that all I need to do then is sit on the couch, pray to God, and something magical is going to happen in my body, and I will come out. I will go onto the couch proud. Oh, Lord, please help me in my pride. Oh, I just stopped trying, and now I trust him. I'm so humble. Look, everyone, I'm so humble. So you say, look, everyone, you're so humble. You're proud. You know, you're just stuffed. They sound lovely little slogans. The problem is they are completely wrong and they are heretical because they're not in the Bible. And if therefore we live by them, what we will have in our lives is profound disappointment as we realize, I'm still not changing. And we will be confused because we will actually start to blame the problem on God. As if he's not changing us. The reason why I'm not changing, what can I do? He's just not helping me. They're heresy. They're problematic. They're dangerous. See, grace as biblically defined is never opposed to effort. Never. Grace as biblically defined is opposed to earning. It's opposed to somebody thinking that through my behavior, this is how I earn my acceptance of God. That through my behavior, this is how he will love me and accept me. Grace is opposed to that. Because grace tells us nothing you can do will add to your salvation. Your salvation is all Jesus Christ. He has paid it all for you in full. So you are saved by grace alone. You don't need to earn it. He's done it all. 
But when you become a Christian, grace is not then opposed to effort. Because quite clearly in the Bible, we hear a lot about effort. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul has just spent three long chapters beautifully surveying the glories of our salvation, hasn't he? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. He made you alive in Christ. It's all by grace. Over and over again, he helps us see it's all Jesus. It's all him. It's all him. It's all him. And chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've received. You hear the word change? I'm urging you now. It's up to you now. You are on now. I urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling you have received, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Do you hear the words eager, urge? He then goes on in different letters to talk about striving and making every effort and training yourself and moving and pressing on and working. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. And as we pursue holiness, then, our grace-motivated effort will be very important. If you just sit around waiting for God to do something miraculous, you'll be sitting around the rest of your life. Because you have a part to play in this process. It's something you need to do. Effort is going to have to be made, and we must understand then that in this process, holiness is a process that requires effort, but that's not all. Number two, holiness requires the putting off of the old self. Got to put it off. Look with me at verse 20. It says, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's reminding them there, listen, This is the way the Gentiles behave. This is the way they talk. This is the way they go about their lives. And the reason why verse 20 has got an exclamation mark at the end is because Paul's basically doing this. He's saying, listen, this is the way unbelievers live, but you, no! That's what he's doing. He's saying you should be different. This is not the way you learn Christ. Through Jesus Christ, you're a new creation, right? You were born again to a new and living hope. It's different for you now. And so, verse 22. And so, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. I love this. What Paul is doing is he's painting a picture here of a divine changing room. And I love it. For all of those who like shopping, you know what a changing room is. I think I've been in one twice in my life. It's not my preference. But we all know what a changing room is, right? Well, this is the divine changing room. This is Paul's divine changing room. And so here's the scenario. We're standing in the queue. We are waiting for our go in the divine changing room. And we observe that there is a sign at the side of the road. And it makes it clear in the queue that when you enter the divine changing room, don't just stand there and do nothing. Otherwise, nothing will happen. When you go into the changing room, do effort. Effort is going to be needed. You're going to need to do something. Or you then proceed to the changing room. Close the curtain. And what you immediately notice is, hey, there's there's two very different things in this divine changing room. On the one side, there's just this big hole. And as you peer your head down it, you realize, man, all I can see down there is old clothes. 
People are just taking off their clothes and putting things down here. And then on this side, you realize, my, these racks are just filled with new clothes. All these new things. I mean, this is amazing. So it's your turn in the divine changing room. On one side, clothes that need to be put off and removed. On the other side, new clothes. And Paul then undoes the curtain in the divine changing room and says, hey, how you sit there then? Having fun? And he explains to us, listen, here's the first thing you've got to do. If you're going to become more like Jesus Christ, I'm going to close this curtain, and here's what I want you to do. All those clothes, man, they're bad. They're your old clothes. They're your old ways. They're lying and malice and deceit and gossip and lust. They're the old clothes. So I'm going to close the curtain and I want you to take all these clothes off and I want you to put them in that bin. You're going to put off your old self. Because if you're really going to become more like Christ, then you're going to have to take them all off and they're going to have to be gone. And so right up front, Paul explains to us that holiness requires the putting off of the old self. And you would think that that process would be easy, wouldn't you? You see all these new clothes on this side. You see the bin on this side. You've seen other people going before you. You would assume that taking off these old clothes and getting rid of them would be easy. But it's not, is it? It's really hard. Because given the presence of indwelling sin in our lives, we can be deceived into not even noticing these old clothes, can't we? We think, wow, I don't think they're too bad. I think they're fine. I mean, I know I'm not like Jesus. I know I'm not perfect, but they look all right. See, my friends, whenever we rock up at growth group and we have nothing to share as to where we're not like Christ, already you're being deceived. Because you don't actually think you're like Jesus, right? Yet we just can't put our finger on how we're not. Well, ask your group then for for help in that. Ask them, where do you see I'm not like Jesus? And the reason why you don't want to do that is because you're proud. So start there. There are lots of ways we're not like Jesus. And Paul says, all those old clothes you've got to put off. And yet we start to look at those old clothes and we start not to be able to even see it. And even when we do see it, because of the nature of indwelling sin, we don't want to take them off because we start to think, but these are who I am. If I take these off, I'm probably not even going to recognize myself. I don't think I'd even be able to manage. I mean, I love these. The thing is about our old clothes is we know they look a bit rough, but they aren't half comfortable, aren't they? They're well-trodden paths. They're things that you just think, but I feel good in this. I don't know. I see that one, truthfulness. I don't know. It looks a bit crusty around that. It probably hurt my neck or something. But this one's okay. I'm comfortable. I know I'm all like Jesus, but, but I like this. It fits. There used to be a show in Britain. I used to live there called Trini and Susanna. Did it get here? Oh, you poor things. It was awful. I mean, I have a day off on a Monday, and there'd be different times when I would flick on the television, and there it would be, Trini and Susanna. <laughs> they would pick these people from the public, the poor things, just, you know, little old ladies walk around the shopping mall. Hello. And they'd say, oh, yes, those clothes are awful. Would you like a makeover? And you think, oh, that's a bad start. And they, okay, I'd like a makeover. And so they take these people, and what you tend to find is all these people that they actually pick, they've got stories. They've usually lost someone, they're bereaved. Something's happened in their lives that, that's really went, that they've started to behave and dress the way they have. What's always interesting is they take these people into this changing room and they explain to them, we're going to give you all these new clothes, they're going to suit you, they're going to look great on you, but all those clothes that you've got in your wardrobe, man, they're going to have to go. And you can see these people just 
but I don't want to give them up. I know they're old and I know they look awful, but they're me. You know, as Christians in our spiritual walk, I think we can be exactly the same, can't we? We like them. We feel comfortable with those fears. We feel comfortable with those not quite truths. We feel comfortable with different sins in our lives. And yet for Paul, he's explaining to us that if you are truly going to become like Christ, then those old clothes, they've got to come off. They've got to go. And then there's more. Number three, holiness requires the renewing of the spirit of our minds. Look at verse 23. He says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So you come into the divine change room, you take off the old clothes, and now you've got to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now what Paul isn't saying there is that in order to change, we need to get our heads straight. He's not talking about some academic exercise. So if you're really going to change, whew, better go to more college and start learning the Hebrew and the Greek. That's not what he's saying, okay? He's not saying you've got to get your head straight in an academic sense. He's saying in order to change, we need to get the spirit of our heads straight. Our philosophy, our understanding, our reasoning, if you will, the the heart of our minds. We've got to get that bit straight. And to Paul, if we're going to change, then that's also vital. Because to Paul, just putting off is never going to be enough. To genuinely change, then we're also going to need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. So these old clothes that we're taking off, we're going to have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds when it comes to them because we're going to look at them going down the chute and we're going to want to grab them because we feel comfortable in them. And when we get rid of them, we feel a bit naked. And so we just, we just want to keep them. And maybe I could try a few of these like on top, but I quickly quite still quite like these. And so we need to be renewed in our thinking towards our old clothes and realize that these old clothes are the world's clothes. They're things that are dragging us back from really pursuing Christ. They're things that are enabling us to not look like Jesus Christ. They're things that will ultimately hurt us and hurt the church and disappoint the Lord and grieve Him. And it's when we're renewed in the spirit of our minds that we realize, what am I even hanging on to these things for at all? And then we're renewed in the spirits of our lives because in the spirit of our minds, as we look at our life, we like to start to think of ourselves as the center, don't we? That this whole world revolves around me. I say, yeah, there's others that I need to help, but at the center is, is just me. I am the center of my world. And yet when we open our Bibles, we realize I'm not the center of my world at all. God's at the center of everything. And so whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, it's got to all be for the glory of the Lord because he is the one who knitted me together in my mother's womb. He is the one who saved me. He is the one that ultimately I would give an account for. Heaven is my home. And we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds when it comes to God's commands. Because I think for all of us, but particularly when we're young, we can start to think of God's commands as just spoil sport. I mean, what's his problem? Does he want to ruin all the fun? The Ten Commandments, that looks like all the good stuff. What do I have to do? Go to church! We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds as we realize these commandments given to us by the Lord are not given by some harsh headmaster that doesn't even know us. They're given by a father who knows your name and knitted you in your mother's womb. 
and knows what's going to be best for you. Knows what's going to bring blessing to you. Knows what's going to help you. Knows what will ultimately harm you, namely pursuing each of those things. And so he instructs you, don't do this. They will hurt you. They will defile you. Now that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 and 3 prays for our spirit of our minds. Do you realize that? Twice to the Ephesian church, according then to us, he prays for the spirit of our minds. In chapter 1, he prays that we would understand the hope to which God has called us, that we would grasp the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that we would grasp that we really are treasured possessions, and that we would comprehend the greatness of his power. And in chapter 3, that we would be overwhelmed by the love of God, that the love of God would just overwhelm us and consume us. And my friends, if that prayer is going to be answered in your life and in my life, then we're going to be rene- have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds if we're going to change. And if we're going to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, then that means being riveted to this. Because this is, this is what it is that renews us. This is what washes us. This is what helps us. This is what aids us. How else are you going to be renewed in the spirit of your minds? You have to put off and be renewed. It's this that will renew you. It's one of the reasons why at Sovereign Grace we're constantly trying to help you get into your word. Because primarily as a pastor, I've got nothing else. I'm a one-trick pony. And I don't mind. Read your Bibles. It will help you pursue Jesus. You will live a blessed life. Amen. That's what we must do. And yet so often for Christians, that one thing that we repeat time and time and time again seems to be the hardest. Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Do you hear that? Blessed. Barak, that whole premise of supremely happy. Supremely happy is the man who does what? Who delights in the Lord day and night. He'll be like a tree that doesn't wither, but stands firm, that is durable, that bears fruit. In fact, in all that he does, he prospers. For all scripture, Paul tells us, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent. Equipped for every good work. No wonder then the man of Psalm 1 is so blessed because he grips this Bible, he meditates on it day and night. And because of that, he's equipped for every good work and whatever he does then, he's blessed, he prospers. Because he's putting off the old self and he's allowing his mind to be renewed. Understanding who God is, who he is, what God's commands are, what our sin really does to damage us. My friends, we must be a people of the word if we're going to change. There is no plan B. None. We must be in this word if we're going to renew our minds. Number four, holiness requires the putting on of the new self. Verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and Holiness. 
So the scene isn't hard to see. Put off the old self. Let them go. They've got to go down the chute. Be renewed in the spirits of your minds. And put on the new self. Because these new clothes, they're made in the image and person of Jesus Christ. They're him. They are his holiness that we clothe ourselves in. And in the verses that follow this passage, Paul then gives us some examples. Explaining, okay, we've got to put off lying and put on truthfulness. Put off anger and put on self-control. Put off stealing and put on honest labor and generosity. Jay Adams says it this way. He says, putting off and putting on are two factors that must always be present in order to affect genuine change. Putting off will never be permanent without putting on. Friends, that's so important. We can't just put off the old self and then go, well, I put it off. You know what all that, all that is? It means you're walking around naked. It won't last because you'll be embarrassed and you'll put it back on again. We have to put off. We have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And then we have to put on. What is it about Christ that I need to clothe myself in this situation? As I put off lying, I must put on truthfulness. And here then is how we do this, friends. I want you to hear this, because it's important. Otherwise, you will go home at lunch and you will want to take too many tablets. Here's what you must understand. Here's how we do this. We do it through one decision and one piece of clothing at a time. Because here's what happens in my life. I go into the divine changing room and I'm, I'm past the stage of being deceived with my sin. I can see it everywhere. I, I can see it everywhere. And it can be overwhelming. As you realize, well, Lord, this is going to be a long trip to the changing room. Because my shoes suck, and my socks suck, and my jeans, and my shirt, and my hat. Everything I've got on, it, it, it's, it's not you. And so, Lord, where do you want me to start? Because it is going to be a long effort. And what actually happens in my life, then, is I can be overwhelmed and not even want to start. My friends, we must understand that we serve a God who is gracious and patient and slow to anger and merciful. And the way when we change, we do it through one decision and one piece of clothing at a time. And when we do that, God in his grace is truly pleased with you. Just one thing. One change. And God is at the side saying, well done. Yes. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. I love it. Why do we imagine God to be so unmoved by our heartfelt attempts at obedience? He is, after all, our heavenly Father. What sort of father looks at his daughter's homemade birthday card and complains that the color scheme is all wrong? What kind of mother says to her son after he gladly cleaned the garage but put the paint cans on the wrong shelf, this is worthless in my sight? What sort of parent rolls his eyes when his child falls off the bike? On the first try, there is no righteousness that makes us right with God except for the righteousness of Christ. For those who have been made right with God by grace alone through faith alone and therefore have been adopted into God's family 
many of our righteous deeds are not only not filthy rags in God's eyes, they are exceedingly sweet, precious, and pleasing to him. Isn't that beautiful? So you don't go into the divine change room and God says, right, I want it all done now. Let's go. You've got five minutes. He says, all right. Well, let's go with one thing then, all right? Hey, hey, as you started to move towards that button then, well done, son. That's, that's good. Top of father, as, as de Young says. You know, if the daughter comes and gives him a card, says, this, this, this color street, this color, it's terrible. The color scheme's all wrong. Now they delight in it, don't they? And that's what God does with us. When we move towards him and we seek to change, as Thomas Watson says, he will see faith and pass by the failing. He sees our lean, he sees our heart, he sees our desire, and he applauds it as a wonderful father. He passes by the failing. There'll be other days to address those. But as for today, well done. And here's the final piece of good news. Number five. In the pursuit of holiness, we are never alone. And what a happy discovery this is, my friends. A happy discovery. Your faces are a picture right now. You are not discovering many things that are happy. I want to tell you something that is happy. This is going to be a happy discovery for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. I love that. He's reminding us that, okay, in the Christian life now then, you are never alone. You will never be alone. You've been sealed with the deposit, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing in your inheritance. And listen then to what he says to the Philippians, because he explains to the Philippian church what it is the Holy Spirit will do in the help of their pursuit of sanctification. What the Holy Spirit will do in their lives as they pursue holiness. Listen. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What he's saying there is this. Listen, okay, guys, in light of it all, pursue holiness. Pursue becoming like Christ. Work out your salvation. Work out becoming like him, in awe of him and standing in awe of him. And then he says this. (laughs) I love this. This will make you happy. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Is that not a happy discovery? It is, it is God who works in you. Even the desire to get in the changing room, that's not you, that's God. Even now, for some of you, as you're experiencing the conviction of the Lord, that isn't just you feeling bad, that is the Holy Spirit at work, helping you see, yeah, Yeah, you have some old clothes on, right? He's using you. He's involved in your life. It is an evidence of your salvation. Even now, he's at work in your will. And he doesn't just stop then as you enter the divine changing room. He works in our will and he works in our work for his good pleasure. 
He works in your body to help you want it, and then he helps you actually get it. He doesn't just work as will in our lives, he works to work in our lives. And so here then is our hope for change. Our hope for change is Jesus. Our hope for change is God. If all this was, was a lecture on how we need to change us, okay kids, let's go to the divine changing room. You've got no hope, and neither have I. We are stuffed. But that's not the reality. We have a deposit guaranteeing an inheritance. It says, hey, I'm going to work in you. I'm going to work in you to will, and I'm going to work in you to work, to change. I'm going to make you become Jesus Christ over time. I'm with you. I will never let you go. I will always be with you to help you change. John Owen says it this way. He says, The duties that God requires of us are simply not in proportion to the strength that we possess in our lives. They're not, are they? God himself says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Be holy as I am holy. We should be thinking in our lives at that point, oh, no! I'm never going to do it. And yet what he actually says is, be holy as I am holy. And here, I'm going to send a helper suitable for you, to help you. Both the Father and the Son will come and reside in your heart. We will help you change. We will work in your life, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so I'm with you. A deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And there's a deposit that is going to help you, by God's grace, be transformed from one degree of glory to another as you pursue holiness. Isn't that wonderful? I told you it was a happy discovery. And so my friends, I want to encourage you then. Would we, as Mr. Piper says, would we act the miracle? He saved you by his miraculous grace. He's opened your eyes. Would we now act the miracle? For this pursuit of holiness to be possible, we need each other, don't we? We need each other's encouragement. We need each other's confessions. We need each other's prayers. We need one another to stir one another up and to hold us accountable. We need each other. But by God's grace, we have each other, right? That's why we don't want to be saying every time we get to growth group, oh, I'm a bit busy this week. Because we miss out on that pursuit of holiness, but also we're not there to help others. It looks like we're not interested in helping anybody else. We need each other. And by God's grace, I believe we have each other. And for this pursuit of holiness to be possible, we need the Lord, don't we? We need the one who spins the galaxies the one who rose Jesus Christ from the dead. We need him. And the Bible tells us, you have him. We have him. He's working in our lives. And so would we act the miracle? And for the glory of God then alone, would we pursue holiness together as a local church right here in the dearest place on earth? Let's pray. And if the band want to come up, that would be good. Oh, Father, you are so patient and so kind to us. Lord, there's times in our lives when we come across pieces of Scripture and parts where we are brought into line with a jolt. And Lord, I believe this topic is one such jolt. 
Well, Lord, I thank you that you're not wagging your finger now in an irritated tone. It's about time than you. That you're coming alongside us as a father and saying, hey, those old ways, they're not becoming of you now. They're damaging you. They're damaging my bride. And so those old ways, let them go. Take them off. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and then put on the new self. Become like my son. But I thank you that you are patient with us as we go through that process. But more even than that, you are personally present with us. So Lord, would we keep looking up and would we keep moving forward with grace-motivated effort? And would we become then more and more like you? Amen.